Hello, and welcome to Dwelling on Dreams, where two passionate Harry Potter fans dive deep to examine the wizarding world. I'm Taylor, a Ravenclaw. And I'm Victoria, a Hufflepuff. Thank you for joining us. For those of you who haven't read the books or seen the movies yet, what are you doing listening to us? Please, go and do that now, because if you stick around, you can expect spoilers ahead. Today on Dwelling on Dreams, we are going to be finishing our discussion on Remus Lupin, which we started last episode. And I hope that you have listened to part one, but in case you haven't, we're going to give you a little peek into our discussion in a second here. Before we do that, though, we are going to wish a very happy birthday to James Potter, Harry's father. He will be turning 60, or he would be turning 60 if he were still alive, this coming Friday. So happy birthday, James Potter. We will actually be discussing in an upcoming episode his cloak of invisibility in his honor, so be on the lookout for that. But for today, we are going to turn our attention back to one of his best friends, Remus Lupin, the werewolf. For those of you who have not listened to part one of this discussion, I'd suggest you go back and listen. But if you want to get just a quick overview of what was discussed, here's the bird's eye view. We're told that he was a very happy, well-adjusted child, magically gifted, even at an early age. He didn't have a lot of friends because his parents chose to try to hide his condition. He was definitely one of the more pragmatic, level-headed ones of the group. He had spent his entire life stifled and being kind of shunted away because of this disease. He definitely was not the one to speak up and to tell them that they were doing something that was wrong. He was hungry and thirsty for that companionship that he'd never had before. They definitely suspected him way more than Peter. He lost all of them all at once. He took jobs that were far below his level of ability. He could have figured out a better solution for himself. He takes a lot more on himself mentally than he's responsible for. He kind of had a foot out the door the whole time. He was, you know, one of their favorite professors, if not their favorite. He doesn't seem to be a man of intense action. All right, now that you're all caught up, we're going to pick up right where we left off at the end of episode 17. So he leaves Hogwarts, kind of goes, seems to go back to his lifestyle beforehand. Nothing really seem, significant seems to happen. Except until... that the war ramps up like a year later. Yes, when he rejoins the Order of the Phoenix. It's interesting that after he kind of built the relationship with Harry, we don't hear about him hardly at all during the fourth book. That is something that always bugged me. He put in the time to teach Harry. Mm-hmm. And through that experience, they became somewhat close at least. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that they were, you know, bosom buds, but Harry kind of started to look up to him as favorite uncle type of thing you know like not like a surrogate dad no no no. which is what Sirius ended up becoming yeah he didn't consider him family I don't think like he did Mm -hmm. Sirius but he did like an adopted uncle that you see at Christmas and you're very fond of yeah there doesn't seem to be any letters exchanged Mm -hmm. or gifts or anything I always kind of wondered how much Harry actually reached out about it too because I'm sure Remus probably didn't want to be like the first one to reach out but did Harry reach out to him at all let me look it up Okay, so there are only a handful, eight total mentions of Lupin in the fourth book, and it seems that most, if not all of them, are related to him as having been a professor, not his relationship really to Harry. The last couple are in regards to getting him to join the Order, basically when Dumbledore was telling Sirius to start recruiting again, and then he tells him to stay at Lupin's after he's done. The whole thing is just dropped for a book. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on in that fourth book. And it's a very long book. It's a very long book. I always like, when I reread through, I can read through the first three in like a day. And then I get to the fourth. I love the ending of the fourth one. It's a bit dense getting through the whole thing. It's a good book, but it's a long one. So after Voldemort returns, Ziri shows up at his place and says, we're starting the Order of the Phoenix again. Voldemort's back. I need to stay with you for a while. Eventually, Sirius relocates to Grimmauld Place and remises them back in the Order and sent back to the werewolves. Mm-hmm. 
So his communication then is, again, patchy, probably somewhat distant. It doesn't seem to be effective, whatever he's doing. The werewolves do not ever, <laughs> ever even hint that they want to join Dumbledore, but he's trying to turn them against Voldemort at the very least. That's his job, mm-hmm. which is a little bit like he's the werewolf, so he has to go to the werewolves, and that's all he's good for. But that always bugged me a little bit. That that's all he seemed to really be asked to contribute was his werewolfness. Yeah, I mean, he's very smart, and he pretty handy with spells if he was yeah. you know really good dada teacher and He's good dueler good dueler he brings a lot to the table honestly just skill wise aside from his attitude i will say that i think sometimes the way even his friends not the marauders but in the order of harry's day treat him contribute somewhat to the problem mm-hmm. they're not mean to him but i feel like even dumbledore when they're talking to him or about him has this pitying almost but at least sad melancholy air of oh remus mm-hmm. you know and part of it is not because of his lycanthropy part of it's because of his attitude and personality but i, I don't think it helped him <laughs> and his mindset when everybody kind of treated him as a tragic character right and i, I would agree with that dumbledore at least definitely and I think that probably did not help Remus overcome his issues with regarding himself as a tragic character. No, I agree. I think if people tell you what you are often and reinforce that with their gestures, with their words, with their tone to you, eventually you will start believing that's what you are unless you have a very firm sense of yourself, which typically you don't growing up. Yeah. And I think Remus developed a firm sense of itself, but it was just very skewed. It's his principles. It's not necessarily morally good, morally bad. It's According to Remus, this is how things are and how they should be and how I should act and how the world should relate to me. That last one I think is important. He has decided how he will relate to the world and the rest of the world should then also fall in line with that and conform with his view. And when they don't, he just, he almost lashes out. Hmm. Not all the time, but definitely at Harry, a little bit at Tonks when she's still trying to win his love or whatever she's doing. And even his relationship with Tonks is, it's nuanced and required him to be talked into it, which I don't know, that's a great way to start a relationship. I mean, he was so set on always being a bachelor. He was so set on always being miserable. Yeah. It wasn't like it was a lifestyle choice. It was just uh, he decided that he could not be happy. And certainly he couldn't make anybody happy. And so no matter what's going on or what the other person thinks. Again, I think it was self-punishment for all the stuff in his life. Like he took it on himself. And, you know, that meant he was never going to be romantically happy he just adjusted to that and went with blinders on (laughs) that was the way and then you know tonks comes out of nowhere and i think he just did not know how to handle it but he made her i mean i'm not okay her emotions were not on him i'm not saying it was his fault but she was miserable the whole sixth book they talk about how she was dull and lifeless and clearly sad she was he was worried he was going to ruin her life by being with her but he was kind of ruining her life by not being with her and he didn't Mm -hmm. see it or didn't care i don't Mm -hmm. know what it was because everybody noticed that tonks was miserable remus is to me a person who once he has made up his mind of his course of action once he's rationalized it all out even if it's flawed logic it's his outcome he can live with that's it that's what it is he always has struck me as being a very principled character even if the principles are his principles it may not necessarily be the right choice but to him he feels like it is So he's going to go for it and it's going to take a lot to pull him away. To him, he was showing his love because he was being sacrificial and trying to let her go. Very tragic love story. But he's writing his own tragedy and no one else is participating. Right. But that's the thing he just doesn't see. (laughs) 
I think he's just this inner tragic romantic. Like I said, anhedonic. He just can't enjoy something. He needs to be tragic and miserable all the time. But then he starts getting close to Tonks. Yes. And it says he was first amused, then impressed, then seriously smitten. Yes. And it makes the point in the article that he would flee in the normal course of things. He'd never been in love before. Yeah. And that if it weren't wartime, he would have just gone to the next town and cut contact. Well, because he was worried about her falling in love with a young, handsome or in her workspace. Yeah. He was so preemptively jealous, which is a great, great color on everybody, of course. <laughs> preemptively jealous and preemptively just like seeing the doom. And, <laughs> you know, like he didn't ever think it was going to work out. And also, he, like he said, or we were talking about earlier, has that worldview of how everybody should relate to him and how they, even when they're not actually relating to him that way, he thinks that they are and that they should or that they will be. <sighs> He's exhausting against his character. <laughs> Taylor can't deal with these melancholic personalities. I'm not an upbeat, happy person all the time or anything, but I would be frustrated if I had Remus Lupin as an acquaintance because I feel like half of the things out of his mouth are just how awful his lot in life is. Oh, my. <laughs> I know I'm, if it were a real person, I'd be more sympathetic because he did have many, many obstacles and hurts happen to him. And it was not as cut and dried as he needs to get himself together. But he's a character in a book and he needs to get himself together. Yeah, but it was not written that way. No, it was not. He was not together. No. But Tonks does fall in love with him and starts to actively pursue him. So for the first time in his life, he's this object of... But he's completely oblivious. Yeah. He's completely oblivious. Well, by the end of the sixth book, he certainly is aware of what's going well, on. Yes, yes, yes. So it says in this article that they're, they were sitting talking one night and, you know, they've been friends and she made a remark about somebody else. And he was like, oh, yeah, he always got all the women. And she got really angry and was like, you know perfectly well who I would have, who I've fallen for if you weren't too busy feeling sorry for yourself. Yeah. So, okay, he doesn't pick up on the subtle cues because he's never been pursued before, because he's never been in love before, no one's been in love with him, et cetera, et cetera. This is all new experience for him. Right. But he does figure it out and then rebuffs her and says no. We're referring back to this article because that really gives us the most insight here into his thoughts because the series are from Harry's perspective, so we don't really see all of this. But his immediate response was he was so happy. He was never had known the happiness that he felt after she said all that. But then he crushing duty, especially because he was so scared of passing on his condition. So he pretended not to understand her, which did not fool her. (laughs) She knew it was out of mistaken nobility is what they call it, that he would not pursue her, which didn't deter her. I am, I'll admit, I'm not the biggest fan of Tonks as a character either. She's not naive, but she... She's young. She's young. And she... I don't think Remus was right in the way he handled Tonks. I don't think necessarily Tonks was right in the way she handled Remus either. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily think they probably would have made the best long-term relationship. She was too... She was kind of aggressive. I don't think it was a good fit for Remus. When he had to be talked into it, when she spent all that time invested, when he was saying no and she kept going and kept going... I don't think it was necessarily the most healthy start to relationship, mm-hmm. but we didn't have time to find out how long it would have lasted. War pushes people together no matter what. Yeah. No, I agree. Tonks is not my favorite character for Remus. I did name a, a car partner. after her. But. Did. Yes. I mean, I, Tonks as a character is very interesting, but no, I think, again, like we said, she's very young and I know written from Harry's perspective, she's older, but yet. She's, now, she's young, she's goofy. At my age, I'm looking at it and I'm yeah. like, 
she's young. And part of that is, I think, realizing her self-worth. She becomes so despondent over Remus. And okay, yeah, maybe you've been there. But you have to find life without that person. Yeah. If that's not working out, then you just need to move on and find a purpose outside of that. I mean, that he became her purpose. Aside from the war, her right. purpose was winning over Remus, which necessarily wasn't the most healthy. Yeah, and I totally agree. Her purpose should have been the war and making a good life for herself. You can't force someone to love you. And, and you can't pine for them and make them feel sorry for you yes. until they do. Amen, sister. But she does eventually, after Dumbledore dies, after they fight, the battle of the lightning struck tower floor declares her dedication to her scarred fiance and bill weasley they're inspired to yell at each other until they yeah <laughs> until they agree to to date yeah uh, and then they immediately get, get pregnant get married and get pregnant yes boom, and boom. Remus was not ready for that he's completely caught off guard by this pregnancy and panics we don't know if there was a conversation with tonks if there was a fight exactly how he left her we just know he left he left and we don't know how long he was gone before he went to harry mm-hmm. so it might have been a few hours it might have been a few days but he goes to harry and asks harry if he would join and harry's actually tempted because having the experience of an older more skilled wizard can't hurt when you're you know hunting darker artifacts mm-hmm. but that was before he knew that tonks was pregnant right he figures out something's off he smells a rat kind of forces Remus to admit that she's pregnant. And then uh, things go poorly. <laughs> Poor Remus. <laughs> yes. Um, Harry's right. Harry's right. Yeah. Harry basically. Harry's very much right. He's particularly enraged that Remus invokes James and says, I'm sure James would want me to stick with you. And Harry's like, Mm-mm. my father died protecting me. You think he'd want you to go off with us and leave your own kid behind, leave your wife behind. He doesn't take that well. <laughs> and again, it's too. a very interesting scene, though. It is. I love this scene. I was sucker for all the scenes where Harry gets into it with an adult, especially when he's right. He's not always right. He's not always right. But when the adult is wrong and Harry just lays it out and they often yell and scream. And as in this case, it makes me feel proud of Harry, even though, again, he's a fictional character. So it anyway, ends actually with Remus being physically violent to Harry, mm-hmm. which very, very rare if this might be the only case where an ally of harry's is physically violent toward him right he blasts him up against the wall harry is dazed he doesn't you know push him he mm-hmm. actually attacks him and storms out harry's fine mm-hmm. he doesn't you know harm him seriously no but- no, no i think Grubus is embarrassed angry displeased he's surprised probably come out and i think again self-loathing that he always carries around with him yeah. but a 17 year old's calling him out on his stuff and it does imply mm. that he's kind of out of control it says that it's the first time harry sees the shadow of the wolf on his face like harry, yeah like he kind of loses it a little bit yeah but i also think that he does use his lycanthropy as an excuse for cowardice and inaction sometimes mm. like when he is talking about you know his son and he's going on and on and on about how you know he's he's a werewolf and that's gonna have this horrible impact on his on his progeny I feel like a lot of what he does is he allows himself to give in to cowardice and then just kind of excuses it because he's a werewolf and therefore he all these horrible things are true about him. And it's not that they're not true, mm-hmm. but he refuses to try to then overcome that in his own mind to try to, to be better than he is. He's not really one for self-improvement. Hmm. He, he uses his being a werewolf as a cop-out sometimes, I feel, instead of trying to be better, to be braver. He just, he's a werewolf. So, oh, poor Remus. Everybody feels sad. Hmm. Okay. I feel like I just articulated that for the first time, but I'm feeling good about it. Now, I will say, I don't believe he is a coward. 
he makes bad choices and sometimes are somewhat cowardly, but he's also fights wars and then he eventually steps up for his son. He eventually steps up for his wife. But yeah. every time he's confronted with a decision, a big decision usually, he goes into that mindset of, oh, woe was me. I'm a werewolf. This is a terrible idea because, you know, no one could love me. I'm not deserving of whatever his mm-hmm. mindset is. And it takes someone forcefully, very forcefully, knocking some sense into him for him to then find his courage. Yeah. I mean, I can see that. Evidence points to the fact that he can't pull himself out of that type of mindset once he goes in. Ultimately, he's responsible for the decisions that he made. But part of it is when you have a society that constantly preaches a rhetoric that is just toxic and antagonistic towards you as a species, you as a human. I understand where he's coming from, where he believes that this is going to be extremely damaging because of the stigma that he's had to live through and attitudes of society at the time. Because, you know, we're coming in, the war is not won. There's lots of different policies going through, especially Umbridge trying to push through. That makes things harder and harder and harder for werewolves. You can't get a job. You can't blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, I do understand his struggle where that is a legitimate concern about, I mean, do I think he needed to freak out and leave his wife and his son for all of that? No. But I do understand where the panic comes from and where just the mind spiral could Uh, have stemmed from. Yeah, I think it was a valid concern of him to be concerned for his family and the stigma that they faced from being associated with him. I think I'd feel better about that if it wasn't wartime and they weren't all already constantly in danger. It, it yeah. wasn't. I mean, I'd still think that he he should have figured out how to be a grown up about his relationships. But I would understand more if Tonks was just this happy, carefree Young Orr, who had no problems except for, you know, what she had for dinner that night and his lycanthropy would be negatively affecting her. Her life was already pretty messed up by her own choice and by circumstance because she was the half-blood daughter of a, you know, pure-blood witch who came from a crazy family who were trying to wipe her out. She was also, or joined the Order of the Phoenix, was working for Dumbledore to bring Voldemort down. She was not naive. She was not safe. And so... The fact that he then kind of takes all of that on himself and kind of talks himself out of being with her because he's going to ruin her life. It's right. No, I mean, <laughs> not that I her life it. was ruined, but I mean, I get where you're coming from. I'm just saying that I can still see how that is a valid concern. And I can see how he thought that. I mean, ultimately, yes, I do think that it just kind of got to be a lot for him. <laughs> I mean, he's someone who is, again, nomadic. He lives alone. He's been alone most of his whole life, in his mind, at least, you know. The only time that he had people was really with his friends, and all that was ripped away. Which, again, may just be a mental failing on his part there. Probably is, but that's how he thinks. And so the fact that he now has, you know, a wife and a child depending on him, and they're in the middle of a war, I understand the moment of weakness that he had there thinking that through. I I don't condone it. I don't think it was right, but to him, I can see how he's like justified at least going to Harry and being like, hey, I want to, I need to, I need to get away from this for a little bit. I need to do something with you. Let me help you. And he probably was thinking that that would still be there when he was done, when the war was finished, he could go back. She makes the point in the article that he did have such great examples of parents being self-sacrificial for their kids Mm -hmm. Lily and James and his own parents Mm -hmm. and they stepped up and they were there for their kids and that's kind of what 
besides Harry's words, which obviously for those of you who have read that scene, but those of you who have not read that scene, it's a really interesting conversation. And they, there's nothing even close to replicating it in the movies. Yeah. Harry's so much more interesting in the books. Anyway, yes. according to the article, this was not in the books. He then goes and kind of gets drunk at the leaky cauldron, <laughs> thinks about what Harry says, thinks about the examples he's seen of how to be a father and realizes he's not doing it right. Right. And he, you know, thinks about his own parents and how much they sacrifice to keep him with them yeah. and safe. So, you know, he, he's definitely ashamed and he begs Stonks' forgiveness. Yes. And he, she does take him back. Yep. And he did not go in on any more missions. Well, he does do Potter Watch. Yes, but he doesn't do any, like, right. fighting missions. So we hear him once on Potter Watch, and he kind of offers Harry forgiveness slash an olive branch over the air, even though he doesn't know for sure Harry's listening. But Harry, you know, gets the message. And then when his son is born, he knows Harry happens to be staying with Bill Weasley at that mm-hmm. point. So he's able to actually find him and ask him to be godfather of his yeah. son, which... I always felt was a little bit abrupt because last time they ha- did see each other before he was shaking his hand offering godfathership, he did blast him against the wall. <laughs> I think he wanted to make up for it. And, you know, I think he knew if a 17-year-old could put him in his place and have that much wisdom. But what he needed to do, then he wanted yeah. that person to be his god. And I mean, you know, also sentiment because of James. I think that it makes sense for him to have offered it to Harry, whether it was wise to offer a 17-year-old. Eh, yeah. It's war. Yeah. People make decisions that they probably wouldn't normally have, but Remus didn't have a lot of friends. So, yeah. And then we see him for the last time at the Battle of Hogwarts. Mm. He comes during like the second wave of people who come to Hogwarts specifically to barricade themselves in and fight against Voldemort. And he uh, helps with kind of organizing everything. Um, he leaves Tonks at home. Yeah. He came. And then she came later and he right, didn't yeah. know she was there and she went to find him. That's yeah. what it's implied in the last book. Right. I mean, that's explicitly stated in the last yeah, book. Yeah. But what she it, shows up and he doesn't know that she's there. Yeah. And she asks, where is he? And they said, oh, I thought I saw him dueling Dolohov. 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 A death eater. And then Dolohov. Someone says that he was dueling him. And actually that is the death eater that ends up killing Remus. So it's possible he died before Tonks could get to him. Like you said earlier, he had not been on missions. He was rusty. He hadn't dueled. So when he goes up against Dolohov, who is a very feared Death Eater, it's one of the, I think like, he's main, original. Yeah, he's an original one. So he, yeah. he's, he knows his stuff. Yeah. And he had been basically given free reign over England for the last few months. So mm-hmm. he, he is sharp as a tack and things did not go well for mm-hmm. Remus. And Tonks then dies as well, leaving Teddy to be an orphan. And it was a little bit of a circle of life thing with Harry. And we do see Remus again one more time <laughs> through the resurrection stone. And oh. Harry apologizes to Sirius and his parents and Remus for their deaths, which Harry has also those tendencies of taking too much on himself. It gets me every time, though. I cannot read the seventh book without crying at least once. And then, of course, after Harry apologizes to Remus, he doesn't offer forgiveness, which is probably appropriate given that it wasn't Harry's fault, really. But he kind of leaves Harry with a message of hope for his son and for Britain, really, that one day his son will understand because people caring for him will tell him why his father gave his life and that he gave it so that his son can have a better life. And I've always read into that both, of course, that he loves his son but also that he believed even then when things looked very, very bleak and Harry's about to walk to his own death that 
the battle wasn't over and that they were still going to win and that there was a brighter future ahead of them. And that's really where I think we leave Remus, which is interesting to me that a character that is so gloomy and so depressed for so much of the series ends on a message of hope. And that's all for today. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to visit dwellingondreamspodcast.com to subscribe to the show. We'd also love to hear from you on social media. And if you like what we're doing, you can show your support with a review or on our Patreon page. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to stay tuned for our next episode out in two weeks to hear more from a Ravenclaw and Hufflepuff dwelling on dreams. Dwelling on dreams.